You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. This episode is brought to you in association with Danish roof light manufacturer, Velux. When you get students in a room and you start to ask these questions, how much agency do you have? What What is holding you back? What would you like to see change in the design studio? You just get some incredible answers. They want to discuss this. They don't just want to be set a design brief, go away and give me a pretty thing on the wall for the end of year exhibition. And a curriculum that doesn't empower them to feel like they can change the world is a curriculum that is failing. In this episode, timed with the AJ student issue, we are speaking to Glasgow-based activist Scott McCauley, founder of the Anthropocene Architecture School. Our second guest today is Rosie Murphy, one of the coordinators of the ACAN Education Group. Scott completed his Bachelor of Architecture at the University of Strathclyde in 2019, just as climate activism in the UK built environment ramped up with the founding of Architects Declare and the Architects Climate Action Network. Frustrated by the lack of climate design skills in architectural education, Scott single-handedly founded the Anthropocene Architecture School as a platform for greater climate literacy for architects and to promote architecture curriculum reform. Scott has lectured on climate literacy at 19 universities to date, facilitated climate literacy CPDs in numerous architectural practices, and is a coordinator of ACAN's Climate Literacy Group. In 2021, he joined Archetype's Edinburgh office as a part two architectural assistant while continuing his climate activism work. Scott, it's great to have you on the podcast today. You've given a lot of thought to how architectural education should address climate literacy, what needs to change, and what does a good curriculum look like? Thank you very, very much for having me. We are watching the world change faster than what's predicted. So a good curriculum no longer prescribes an outdated program. It asks questions and it doesn't rely on the answer to every single new problem being a new building. So it's about working with what we've got. It's about changing the role of the architect from someone who creates lots of things to focusing on stewardship of the built environment. So that's a very, very key theme that at the moment is still not firmly embedded in the curriculum. So are things starting to change? Are universities responding? In some places, there's good movement. There are things happening. It's not a kind of collective step forward. Some universities have definitely taken three, four fantastic steps forward. And there's some that are still quite stationary. In the same ways, we've got a performance gap of how our buildings work. We have a huge gap starting to appear. And the difference between universities who are taking this seriously, who are actively hiring people to focus on the climate emergency, adaptation, zero carbon buildings, and the universities who are simply doing what they're used to doing in the past. Teaching in that same way just doesn't make sense anymore. It's not just outdated, it's choosing not to change. There are still universities actively choosing to not do what we all know is required. So can you give us some examples of specific teaching initiatives that you think are successful and could be replicated elsewhere? 
Absolutely, I've got three prepared for you. At uh, the University of well, Daniels in Toronto, there's an incredible studio called Toronto's Half Studio. So their sort of question is, what would it take to half the embodied carbon of the city of Toronto? So they don't just do design projects and hypothetical, what if we did this? They work with practices. So they work with existing buildings. And this has resulted in practices changing how they work. It's resulted in students getting not just employable skills, but skills that can help to actually shift the practice they move into, which actually creates demand for them as practitioners. So it's a really fantastic way of blending academia and practice to push policy. So that's one like fantastic example. If every single architecture school at a half studio would make leaps and bounds immediately. Uh, second one, there's a really fantastic studio at the Manchester School of Architecture. So it's called Some Kind of Nature. And it's a kind of vertical studio with students from Masters of Architecture, Bachelors of Architecture, Landscape Architects. And before they begin their project, they are all given a variety of introductory workshops. So I got asked if I would talk about uh, activism and provocation. So I then used that as an opportunity to bring an agency as well. So instead of just teaching and saying, look at all these wonderful things that we've got the technology to do, it was how can you affect and shift and change opinions and circumstances around you from the personal up to the kind of community, societal, and just by creating the space for students to actually reimagine the future, they felt significantly more empowered. And when you ask students to imagine the future, which architecture school hasn't been doing for quite a while, which is absolutely mind blowing, when you give them the space to come, they come up with that, they come back with incredibly profound and really practical answers. And that's so just giving students the space to discuss, to articulate, to reflect, and to think about where can they put this into practice, not just a, I'm going to learn, get a portfolio, go into a practice, I'm going to work, that's it. It's what else can you look at non-traditionally? So could you support tenants unions who want to improve legislation for tenants' rights? Or do you want to work with kind of advocacy groups or NGOs who are looking to like shift cities to more active travel? So that sort of thing. And the first type is to look at, beyond just agency, uh, to look at the entanglement of the architect. So to look at the policy situation, the kind of political context, and to ask the question, what is stopping the change that we all know we need to see happening? The Retro First campaign is saying, take away the 20% VAT on retrofit. When you introduce that to students, they're shocked. They cannot understand why we are making it harder to do what we need to know. But there's a really incredible book that I thoroughly recommend that's called The Entangled Activist uh, by Anthony Lawson. And there's a really, really powerful quote in this that's pretty much data and information and statistics has never resulted in a policymaker making a rational decision. So we've had 30 years of IPCC reports. Why are building regulations still so lackluster, so, so weakly enforced? So when you get students in a room and you start to ask these questions and ask them, how much agency do you have? What is stopping you exercising your agency? What, what is holding you back? What would you like to see change in the design studio? You just get some incredible answers and they're so, they want to discuss this. They don't just want to be set a design brief, go away and give me a pretty thing on the wall for the end of year exhibition. And a curriculum that doesn't empower them to feel like they can change the world as a curriculum that is failing. Everything you have to say about agency in the wider world is so important, but to bring it down to a more practical level, you do need some basic skills as an architect. 
And when I studied architecture, there was a big divide between the all-important design studio and the technical courses, which students seem to view as peripheral. How does that fit into this new way of working that you're advocating? Yeah, I think this has to start being part of the design studio. You have to be practically applying your learnings. If you were to teach students to use whole life carbon tools, you could very easily be teaching every single wave of students coming through to run really high level whole life carbon simulations. It would not add an incredible burden. It's not as complex as schools are kind of holding it up to be. And if the schools were to invest in that, they could be providing this really bounty to the industry of people who are not just literate, but can use the tools. We can be giving them the tools, giving them the place to not just be given handouts and reading lists, but to walk through when I'm designing and I change this material, how does that impact the whole life carbon of a building? How does the changing the volume actually change? With these sorts of tools, you can see it's like PHPP as well. If we were teaching things like that and having that just as a backstop, so alongside the, the education, students would be able to see and understand that they're not just being given these concepts to tick a box, but to understand that every single line that you draw, every design decision, that impacts performance, carbon, the wider kind of the embodied justice of a project. So the supply chain, are the workers being paid properly, looked after, are they given sufficient PPE? Why do they need PPE? Is that a bad specification that you've used? It's probably petrochemical based. And you can embed these things. We need to start applying it. So if that means we start doing tutorials blended with seminars where there's discussion or we're teaching how to use these tools, not just as a, this is me standing at the front of the room, clicking some slides. It's an actual standing around a computer and seeing it used on a live project, blending the educational with the practice. So having lecturers who are people who do this in practice, who are up to date with the latest tools, and that blends really, really nicely. And we need to start looking at how are we preparing the tutors for tomorrow? It's not just the emphasis on the young generation, like the young generation are not cannon fodder to pick up the slack of what's been left on the floor for quite some time. It's starting to recognise that this curriculum has to invite the tutors to learn at the same time. Yeah, well, the upskilling of tutors is a big issue in a field that's changing so fast. And tutors might not know that much about sustainability or their understanding might be out of date. There's an issue of upskilling the tutors, but also, as you were saying, about having the right attitude, instilling an idea that, that the students should be able to, you know, try and change the world. Yeah, it's a lot of it when it comes to the tutors. I think the schools of architecture have a responsibility to give that CPD, to pass on that education, to create the opportunities for the tutors they are hiring to learn these skills. It's not just a case of, we are here to tick the boxes to say that you've done the learning outcomes according to a design brief that hasn't changed in five years. It's how can we ask better questions? Like I would really advocate that students should be taught to ask better questions instead of writing manifestos. Because we've had enough of manifestos, we've had them for decades and many of them haven't been that great, they've been a bit kind of blind to the reality of how the world works. But if students can start to ask these questions, and instead of just saying, okay, I've been asked to design a school, stepping out for a bit and saying, okay, so I've been given this site, how, how is the construction of a building on this site going to affect the local residents? So there's a really fantastic tool that anyone can use called Right to Know, and it was developed by the Centric Lab who are a neuroscience studio who use data to inform environmental health decisions. 
And this tool right to know, you just put in the postcode of whatever your site is, real life, hypothetical, design studio, and it tells you the pollution impact of that site. So the light pollution, the overheating potential, sound pollution, it, tell, it talks about deprivation as well. So it's, it's also recognising that where we put buildings affect the people that live there. They are not just a kind of imaginary number. And it's, yeah, it comes down to attitudes. Instead of saying we want, a, we want a library in a town that has this many rooms, that teaches this many students, students to ask and say, well, there's an empty building that's not on this site. I'm going to use the empty building instead because where you've told me to put this building doesn't actually make environmental or social sense. So it's also preparing students to, and not, not to say argue, but to question, to ask, are we putting this in the right place? So question the brief, not just the kind of shouting down, like everything has to be environmentally driven, but just asking those questions. So, and having tutors that are comfortable being asked questions, that are not wanting to like imprint their style of design or their attitude to architecture. So having, instilling an openness and tutors should really imagine themselves as the facilitator of the student's education. You're creating the space for them to have discussions, for them to investigate new things, for them to do research. You are not there to create another you. You are there to give these students the space to ask questions, to challenge what already exists. And if you disagree with them, that's totally fine. That can come up in the discussion. But you disagreeing with a student should not be what decides whether they pass or fail. And that has been the kind of background culture in architecture schools. Because students are afraid to challenge tutors based on the fact that they feel it impacts their grades. So there really has to be a cultural transformation that welcomes students who want to question how are things working and not just setting design briefs that are the same one you've copied and pasted from the year before. On the, on the sort of subject of um, the, the culture of, of studio, the recent report on bullying at the Bartlett has shone a light on the way that design can be taught in architecture schools. In many of the schools, a lot of the teaching is extremely esoteric with little relation to the actual practice of architecture. So does a focus on sustainability and the real world impacts that a building can have offer a way to reframe the teaching of architecture and move away from the protecting the prestige of tutors? Oh, absolutely. So it's what's really like fantastic about looking at the sustainability is it brings in the social component. If you have the opportunity, I would thoroughly recommend watching all of the recordings from Retrofit Reimagined in Birmingham. It, had a, it was a fantastic festival of Retrofit that didn't just talk about retrofit as a technical aspect, so it talked about it as a social one and as a civic and community one. So when we teach sustainability in architecture, unless you're giving students that social context, that cultural, political framing, they are latching on to technical solutions. So there are lots of students who are going to dive straight for passive house training. And without that wider grounding, everything looks like a nail if you've only given them a hammer. If you only teach students how to do passive house, they are not being given that broad, holistic climate literacy that involves materiality, that involves the social aspects, that involves the cultural intricacy of every single site, every community you work with. If you're going in thinking, right, everything I have to do has to be to exactly this metric, it's not going to help. Lots of architecture students are being taught in such a way they believe the only thing they can apply that knowledge to is architecture. And that's fundamentally wrong. The skills you get given, you can look at things in a totally different way. You're given a way of looking at space. You're a nexus point between a design team. You're not just someone who's there to 
uh, pretend you designed your building on the back of a napkin with some watercolour paintbrushes that just happens to be beside you. The practice of architecture has to change as well. It's not just the case of slightly tweaking the performance metrics or prescribing a one-size-fits-all, everything has to be this exact way. It is that, it's that cultural transformation. It's really giving people the space to ask questions, to also to unpack and really disentangle some of these traditions that architecture school has got bogged down in. But it's still running because that was the way the people who taught were taught. And it's, there is no, it's not an excuse to say that because I was taught a certain way, I'm going to teach these people this way. That's like, that's not acceptable anymore. We know there's the, the main mental health impacts. There's the culture of overwork and burnout not being fully cared for. And it's using kind of the practice of sustainable, environmentally conscious architecture could totally transform that. And also opening up what it means to practice architecture. So not just having architects teach students, having it multidisciplinary, even transdisciplinary as possible. Just having as many different disciplines, like every architecture student should be learning from structural engineers, should be speaking to kind of eminent your mechanical engineers. We should have, like, we should be listening to builders landscape yeah we need to have this we need to have ecologists like we need to have the people that work the land that do the work the people that the people who lay your roof who build your wall you need to understand that this is not just a totally detached thing that happens in isolation it's celebrating the interconnectedness of the construction industry and that could start an architecture school pretty much from the next semester and that just takes a few very brave heads of schools to say, I recognise there's a problem and we're going to do something about it. And trying to say that we can't do things unless we do it on a traditional timescale, there's no excuse for that anymore. Like, the world is literally on fire. We can see that in the news pretty much daily. And unless we embrace that urgency and recognise that it has to be transformational, then we're just going to run in circles. So that relates to my next question, which is about fractional teaching posts, which of course can work well to make teaching more interdisciplinary. And it's a great resource also to have practicing architects bring the reality of practice into the design studio. But how does this fit with this notion you have of a kind of holistic teaching and, and ethos that will permeate the school if you have people who are there just one day a week and don't really necessarily have the time to understand that ethos. If someone's coming in to teach in one sort of regard, they should be involved in the sort of social aspects of that department. So where people are getting to know each other, you should be able to have people coming in to teach that understand what the students are concerned about, what the students are being taught. But it is very, it's very difficult when, if you, for example, got design tutors who are only going to be in for, say, two days a week, they're in practice the other three. It de really depends on what level are they also teaching. Because if you've got first-year students, first-year students really need a lot more support. So I want to shift gears a little bit, and I have a few questions for you in, in terms of where the state of of practice is. The RIBA Sustainable Outcomes Guide and the Letty Climate Emergency Design Guide have really pushed the industry forward, especially now that they're increasingly finding their way into design briefs. But both of these documents are based on the premise that you can make a net zero carbon building. 
often that depends on offsetting elsewhere. It's hard for designers to say that a new building shouldn't be built. So how real is a net zero building? For architects to say, I've designed a zero carbon building, there's been no impact whatsoever, I'd say there's an element of dishonesty to that because we fully recognise that every building from extraction, construction, supply chains, there is going to be an impact. So it is about setting those kind of benchmarks and those targets. Life cycle analysis has to become something that begins in stage one. You're doing this at every single stage of the design. You're fine tuning, you're tweaking. Clients are being walked through. What is the impact of this building going to be? And then we also need procurement and supply chains that support this because we can say we need to do every building from timber, but we know that we are not going to reach any of our climate targets by just building purely timber new buildings. We need to start looking at what exists. So instead of saying like no building should be built, if you are an architect approached by a client, you immediately should be looking within a square, say 50 kilometers, what's empty, what is not being used, what is currently in the process of being taken apart and actually assessing and saying, you've got these needs, these needs can actually be met in an existing building. And that's not so much saying, I don't want the job, it's proposing the alternative and reimagining what it means to be an architect. So not just kind of flatly saying, we should build nothing, because if we build nothing, there is ramifications up and down the place. But it's that a greenest building is one that's already standing up, but also you might be able to deconstruct and use something somewhere else. We also need to really recognise that we can demand retro first all we want, but until we have the infrastructure, so the physical infrastructure for reusing components for the materials and the people, the skills, the skills capacity, but also the social infrastructure for enabling people to have the space, the time to talk about this, it's looking at it that architects are there to enable the infrastructure of this good stewardship of our built environment. So we shouldn't be building that many new buildings. We should definitely be dialing that back. Practices need to start coming back with alternative options to what even bidding for a project and saying, you want the building here, we've identified, you could do it five times in different places and here's the carbon savings. And here's what we've not used, here's what we've avoided. Yeah, I guess another aspect of that is is the transport impacts, the cars, their fuel, the infrastructure. That's similar to the impact from buildings, but the sort of frameworks for sustainability usually ignore this. Whether you can really have a sustainable building that you that you need to drive to. You are very right about the transport infrastructure. So the way we design have been designing for 50, 60 years has been designing in the dependency on the car. So it's been designing in a dependency upon fossil fuels and that kind of the wider infrastructure is something that as architects, I, I don't think we question enough. And I think that has to come into architectural education, but just, yeah, it's, that, it's the infrastructure for retrofit we don't yet have. We don't have the skills capacity. We don't have the workforce yet. And it's such a huge opportunity for the kind of concept of a just transition. So transitioning to a greener, more equitable, more sustainable society in a way that puts the communities who have felt the impacts of climate change the most, to the top of the queue again, their needs are being met and you're looking after the workforce and it's all just, it's all, it's all about caring and that kind of the empathy of the rest of the world and what is going on and what needs to be done. So Scott, you set up the Anthropocene Architecture School to plug the gap in what's being taught. Can you explain to our listeners what it is? 
So really to introduce the Anthropocene Architecture School, it began as a provocation for the Architecture Fringe. You had to offer a provocation in 2019 based on in real life. So my provocation was architectural education in the face of climate change has become effectively obsolete. And nobody disagreed with me. I expected lots of kickback. Everyone just agrees and asks what's next. So the Anthropocene Architecture School developed from, from a provocation into really a facilitator of spaces. So I kind of took it to the Edinburgh Fringe, we did some workshops, then started getting invited into practices, invited to universities. So it really just became an incredibly agile teaching infrastructure. So sometimes I would put together studios with professionals, experts, consultants, and we would teach students using their projects as an armature for sustainable design education. Being climate literate, literate is about a mindset as much as it is a kind of a list of competencies and skills. It's really, I defined kind of climate literacy a while ago as part of the kind of cost restore project. And it's a pragmatic understanding of the impacts of climate change upon what you're doing and the opportunity of what you're doing to positively respond. So it's it's not just a kind of a metric of, I am seven out of 10 good at this one. It's an, I am prepared to admit, I don't know. And I'm prepared, I know who to ask. It's as much knowing who to ask as it is to ask to doing it yourself because it's not always going to be done by one person. And that's something that in architecture, I think is incredibly healthy to advocate for because we cannot do it all ourselves. We're going to have to involve the entire construction industry and people who've got the skills we don't. So it's many different things. Scott, there are different kinds of activism, making demands on central or local government or making a change yourself in the way you practice and the things you influence. And you've been quite active in Extension Rebellion, and you've said that people have more power than they think they do. All of these big changes that we need, we have seen time and time again, like again, the data and statistics is not enough has not been enough for our government to actually take the action required. But we've so, not just an so example in architecture, your, your impact per medium-sized project is over 190 times the impact of your carbon footprint. And that's across the board. So that's an, a huge impact you can have by, that's by improving one project. But in having more power than you think, it's also more power than we are told. We are not taught that we have the kind of power to collectively change the world, to change society, to change laws. We know that we wouldn't have the weekend if it wasn't for trade unions collectively acting. And I think we really need to recognise that our current system of governance and the way buildings are being regulated are not taking the climate emergency seriously in any way, shape or form. We know that every single time something is proposed for the built environment to make it better, whether that be zero carbon homes, it gets scrapped. You're, we can't change a sort kind of societal system that is entirely dependent upon sacrificial lives, lands and communities to function, because that is how our current form of neoliberal capitalism functions. It does not work unless people are exploited and sacrificed. And we we don't really have this conversation in architecture and we definitely don't have it in architecture skills. There's a really incredible kind of, uh, to paraphrase Naomi Klein, we are alive at the last possible moment when changing course means saving lives on an unimaginable scale. 
And that is the lens upon which we need to start to look at the practice of architecture. It's not just a case of we're saving a bit of carbon. It's a case of all the carbon we do not emit is not contributing to raising the temperature of the planet, which is going to impact the most vulnerable first. And to try and downplay the impact that we have, or to even to downplay our agency, and it's a little bit dishonest because architects are a nexus point between the public, our political representatives, our construction industry, our clients. We are at this point where things don't just pass through us. We can, for example, architects can withdraw their consent from practicing on if a project is going a certain direction and it's negatively impacting your community, you should step back. There is a kind of uh, ethos to do no harm is something that is very, very common for practicing medical professionals. But we know that business as usual in construction does such incredible harm. And in the UK, we do not see the externalities of construction. We don't see the extraction. We don't see the full supply chain. The United Kingdom has been built from extraction elsewhere in the world. Our entire geopolitical position stems from colonialism and imperialism. It's not radical. This is just, this is how the world works. And when I say that you have more power than you've been told, it's recognising an incredibly rich and long history of people taking collective action because so many people in architecture and construction are going to be affected by this cost of living crisis. The claimed emergency is going to make some of our homes incredibly difficult to tolerate, not just in winter, but we've seen 40 degree temperatures in the UK now. We saw throughout COVID-19, the mutual aid that happened was unbelievable. It was incredible. Everyone has this kind of power to collectively organise. We need students to graduate knowing if I can't practice architecture the way I want to, there are alternatives and places for me to use those skills for the positive good of society. And unless the education system catches up and starts to give students that next elegant step, we're going to keep on running around in circles of students becoming disenchanted and despairing. Scott, I wanted to turn your attention on a more hopeful note as we wrap this up. So what are some of the visions you've come across for what a regenerative built environment might be? This can be a building, an initiative, or a book, or, or anything that comes to mind. My favorite examples that I use whenever I'm teaching, the very first one is the Birchke School Science Wing. So this is a science classroom designed so it helps primary age school children learn science. So it's got allotments outside, it's got a green wall inside, it's got solar panels and you can see how much energy is being collected inside. That school is designed to normalise regenerative living for children and that's incredible. Where is that project? Uh, that project's in Seattle. It's an incredible example of how our educational buildings should be teaching this to be the norm. And the kind of second example is uh, ArcNexus SAC. The practice ArcNexus decided that for their own offices, they wanted to practice what they literally preach and turned a warehouse into a living reuse project. So they took this existing building and it now hits the living building challenge standards. And that's just proving that you can take a warehouse, so one of the, a type of building where the least attention is paid to this being airtight, to this being a kind of sustainable building, 
and to make that into like an office space that's not just an office space but has a kind of a community focused element where local artists can exhibit things and part of it the local community can use parts of that building so it's outward facing if you could imagine that every single local authority retrofit becomes a classroom for apprentices for students we've got so we've got 28 or 9 million homes having to be retrofitted in the UK to hit our hit our targets if every single one of those first wave became a classroom we could be upscaling rapidly we could be bring architects to go in and see what's happening students could be walked through the assessment as their literal course every single site of a retrofit or construction is a place of learning and once we can ground that in students minds and it's not just the norm the way that we do things it's not just you turn the lights off every so often you do a bit of recycling it's that the way that we live is not possible without fossil fuels and if we want to stop using them we have to drive down energy demand we have to have things like degrowth which is a incredible concept around regenerative design and degrowth set in perfect harmony and that is something that we can start to advocate for and talk about to bring into our work in meaningful ways and not just as like a, a tick box or a concept but really how do you practice this how do we share what we've learned thank you scott it's wonderful to hear all that you have to say on this topic yeah thank you that was that was great that was fantastic Our second guest today is Rosie Murphy. Rosie is Diversity and Solidarity Coordinator for ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network, and co-coordinator of ACAN's Education Group. She is also an advocate for the Black Females in Architecture Network and a mentor for Homegrown Plus with educator Neil Pinder, winner of this year's AJ100 contribution to the profession. Rosie completed her part two at the Center for Alternative Technology in 2021, following her part one at the Bartlett. She now works at social enterprise Matt and Fiona, empowering young people to shape their own built environment. Rosie, it's great to have you on the podcast today on behalf of the ACAN Education Group. Tell us when you joined ACAN and what your main involvement at ACAN has been so far. So I first joined ACAN back in 2018, I believe. I think I went to the second open meeting that ACAN ever had. Since finishing my degree, I've been able to engage more and actually become one of the coordinators for the education group. So tell us a bit about the various work streams that are going on in the education group. At the moment, we have two continuous campaigns, the first being the Climate Curriculum Campaign, And that's basically to address what we see as the lack of climate literacy within architectural education. And the second campaign that we have continuously running is STUCAN, the Student Climate Activist Network. Tell us about the first one. How are you getting on with your campaign for curriculum reform? The Climate Curricular Campaign started back in 2019 and in its first two years we've done a number of interactive workshops um, and these were addressing tutor and educator upskilling, 
We've had discussions with the RIBA and the ARB and SCOZA all together having a roundtable discussion. And we've also had open discussions with students supplying resources and the toolkit that we've since created. And one thing that we found in the education group is we're working with students and educators who are very much on an academic timetable. So energy sort of peaks and troughs as students graduate and move on and become employees in the work field or move on to other things. And since we come to the end of what is a summer of unprecedented temperatures, now is the time to be galvanising the next cohort of students and engaging them in sort of what the next sort of second wave of activism might be within the group. The toolkit is excellent and it sets out specific actions that students can take. Do you feel you can get traction with that now? I mean, how are you going to go about it? With the toolkit and with Stucan, we were able to make a number of free online resources that are available to everyone to access and they covered things like how to start a student group, how to complete a survey to find out what your individual university might need. And now we have the opportunity to learn from those first attempts and then either adapt, change, evolve those initial ideas for action moving into these next couple of years. Because there seem to be loads of these Ducan groups operating in different universities, Roughly how many are there and what are some of the initiatives of the particularly active ones? Yeah, so we've got currently 24 listed student groups all around the country. Some of the best initiatives are things like lecture series that were coming out of University of West England, Bristol, as well as a really early one that AA Actions Group did with the Architects Declares movement was a student forum, which was very much an initiator to a lot of the ideas that have happened in the education group. So you studied at the Bartlett for your part one, and then you did the master's at CAT, schools with very different ethos and approaches. How do you think design for climate emergency can best be taught? Yeah, so my experience at the Bartlett, this was back in, I graduated back in 2017. So at the time I was very frustrated at the disconnect that I was feeling between my sort of passion and connection to nature and then what I was learning in architecture school. And similar to lots of other people since we've done the student survey back in 2021 with ACAN, I know that my experience was not unique. So I was on the hunt for a school that was more equipped to teach the technical aspects but also sort of a holistic approach to sustainability Um, and I do think that I found that at the Centre for Alternative Technology. So CAT is a very short small course with a cohort of 15 to 20 people and in a much larger sort of mainstream university where you're looking at a cohort of 100 to 200 people the comparison is more between the design studio scale and how design studios construct themselves and write their briefs and work with students and create sort of connections between the students. It's interesting what you say about the flagging of that 2019 early Greta passion and how do you sustain that and refresh that and I think particularly in the context of students and schools that's an interesting question. And I think 
I'm learning about sustainable methods of organising and restoring each other's energies as well through participation in ACAN, where I'm learning more about climate activism and volunteering and working in sort of non-profit organisations. But the knowledge is out there with existing climate activism groups. So it's not like we're having to reinvent the wheel. We just need to remember to use what knowledge is already there, check in with each, with each other, set the correct boundaries for ourselves so we can continue the work and not get burnt out and exhausted. Thanks so much, Rosie. And to all our listeners, if you're a student or an educator and you're interested in joining the ACAN Education Group, you can email education at architectscan.org. That's education at architectscan.org. ACAN Education has an active WhatsApp thread and regular meetings. All ideas and experience welcome. An enormous thank you to Velux. This episode is brought to you in association with Velux. In our next episode, we will be speaking to Patrick Bellew, founder of environmental design consultancy Atelier 10. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts, where you can also catch up with all our previous episodes. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please subscribe and do rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us. Thanks. Thanks.